We are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Lord willing, we will finish up this chapter this morning. It's not often that I know where I'm going to eat uh, weeks in advance. Um, I don't even know where we're going to eat after church today. But I have known for several weeks where I'm going to be eating tonight. And that is right here at the Northside Church of Christ. It's going to be a fantastic Haitian dinner. So uh, hopefully you've already made plans to attend. If not, I don't, I don't guess it's too late. But uh, as you know from our announcements and also in the bulletin, this is going to be a wonderful dinner tonight that uh, Whitlord's uh, mother is preparing for us, and uh, we will all be able to join in. And this is going to be a fundraiser, so um, bring your checkbook, bring your cash, bring a wheelbarrow, um, whatever you can do to, uh, to, bless, to bless this family and this church. So make plans to be here tonight. I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be hungry too. Hebrews chapter 10. How many of us if asked about our marriage, would reach into our purses or reach into our, our chest pocket and pull out a marriage certificate and say, see, I was married. Here's the certificate. This is the certificate to prove it. What day, what month, what year. It says right here, I was married. How many of us would do that? Uh, hopefully none of us. What about our Christian walk, our Christian life? How many of us would say, well, here's my baptismal certificate. Here's the date. Here's the year. This is when I was baptized, this, and I'm a Christian. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't react that way. We wouldn't discuss it like it was just something in the past, something that happened at some moment in time with marriage we talk about the joys, the privileges. We might even share something about what's going on in our life, maybe even the struggles, the challenges that we face. We have something to say about what's happening right now, right now in our lives. And I believe so it is with our faith. We ought to have something to say about our current experiences. Not just, I was baptized, you know, back in July of so, such and such a year, but we would have something to say about what God is doing now, today, in my life. Throughout this whole epistle, uh, the writer has been providing both promises and warnings so that the readers won't get off track, so that they'll, they'll stay focused. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to remind you of a couple of these this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Why? So that we will not drift away. And the reason... And how we don't drift away is that we pay more careful attention. 
Look at verse uh, chapter 3. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful, is a faithful. Let me go back. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. Look at this. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast, if we hold on. Verse 14 of the same chapter. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. All throughout the epistle, the writer is, is giving us these warnings. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. For, if, uh, for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. The message had no value. Oh, the message was valuable, but it had no value to them because they didn't combine it with faith. It is possible to attend a church, even a church like Northside, and hear the truth week after week, year after year, and nothing truly penetrate our heart. Nothing truly change any of our behavior. Nothing that really brings about any real transformation. I think it's possible. It's why James, the brother of our Lord, not James Litzy, it's why the brother of our Lord James says, be doers of the word and not just hearers. It's not, like he, it's not like he's saying you can be one or the other. You can just be hearers, or you could also be doers. He's not saying that. But it's in the doing that truly reveals that you are a hearer. It's in the doing. When we combine the hearing with the doing, then it gives reality to the fact that we have ears to hear. We're not just listening, but we actually are understanding, and then we are actually putting that into practice. Go to chapter 6 of Hebrews. Look at verse 8. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. All right, let's go back to chapter 10. We come back to chapter 10. Look at verse 25. This is where we, where we ended last Sunday. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't give up meeting together. Why? Why is that so important? Because absenteeism, being absent from the meetings, most certainly could lead to drifting away. Let me ask you this. Which comes first? Somebody 
stops coming to the assembly and then they start drifting away? I think in most cases, there's always exception, but I think in most cases they drift away from Jesus and then they slowly stop coming to the assemblies. They don't read their Bibles. They're, they're not involved in study. They're not really spending much time in prayer. They're not sharing their faith. But they keep, they keep coming. They keep up the, the pretenses by showing up to the assemblies. But eventually, over some time, they'll stop coming. They'll stop showing up. Because they did not heed the warnings that were present all along. God has ordained the assembly as a way of keeping us strong. God has ordained what we're doing here this morning, not so that you could come and listen to something that I've been working on all week. I've been, I've been reading or I've been studying and now I want to share it with you. And so God makes you come here so that you can hear a sermon. And all too often, and especially I, those of us who've grown up in the church, we, we ought to be in love with God more and more and more. But sometimes we, we, we've, we've been doing this for so long, for so many years, sometimes we, it's almost as if, do I, have to, do I have to get up and go again? Surely I get a pass, you know? Uh, we, we just got back from Harding. We went, and, went to homecoming. We saw Haley and the chorus sang and you know, they, they have chapel that meets every day. But as a student, you get so many skips. And they don't count it against you. I think you get like five. Whitlord's smiling. He, you used every one of yours, didn't you? No. Yeah, yeah. Can I borrow a skip from somebody this morning? You know, you get like five skips a semester, you know, where, where if you're not there, they don't, you know, they don't count it against you. But after Number six or seven, you know, we're going to have to call you in the dean's office. I think some of us, some of us in our Christian walk were like, don't I get a skip every now and then? I mean, surely. But God has ordained what we're doing this morning, not as a punishment, not keeping you from the golf. You know, sometimes the best golf days are on Sunday morning. It's like Satan just works it out that way, you know. I could be fishing. I could be doing something else, you know. No, this is not a punishment. God has ordained what we're doing here this morning as a way to keep us strong. We encourage one another. We love each other. We spur each other on. We worship God together. So starting with verse 26, the writer issues maybe the greatest warning in all of his letters. It's really akin to, to back in chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 8. These are known as the apostasy passages here in the book of Hebrews. People who turn their backs on the Lord. Uh, they persist in sin, sometimes maybe even for the rest of their lives. Let me just say, as I did back when we, when we talked in, in chapter 6, the great debate uh, through much of Christendom and volumes and volumes have been written about this. Was a person truly saved? Were they really, really saved? And then they fell away 
from God and lost their salvation? Or were they never truly saved? They, they, they just showed up to the assemblies. They made some sort of profession of faith. They said, well, I believe in God, but it never really, really penetrated their hearts, and so they never were truly saved. As I said several weeks ago, um, I believe, and I'll, I will say it again as we work through this passage, I do believe that a person can, can be genuinely saved, really following Christ, truly committed, and then somehow, some way, the cares of the world, the, the, the allurements, the enticements that Satan has, they, they begin to, to slowly drift away to the point where they actually could lose their salvation. I, I, I do believe that, and I think, I think Scripture bears it out. But you must know, uh, if we're honest with the, with the Scriptures, there are many Scriptures that talk about nothing can separate us, okay? We, we're not ignorant of those passages, and you have to deal honestly with them. Um, and I wouldn't fight anybody on it. But ultimately, the bottom line, if a man is truly saved, but he loses his salvation, or someone is never truly saved, what's the end result for both of them? They're not saved. They're not saved. They're lost. So we won't argue about it, because the end result is truly the same. Let's look at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Deliberately keep on sinning. If we deliberately keep on sinning, now listen, church, I don't believe that the writer here is talking about a momentary lapse, something that, that happens where uh, we, we didn't think about it, we weren't meditating on it, we didn't mean to, but we find ourselves in a situation where all of a sudden something happens and we say, maybe we even wrestle with it. We say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. That's not what God wants me to do. No, I, I really shouldn't do that. I know that that's wrong. I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not supposed, and now I'm doing that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a momentary lapse. I believe what he's describing here is what we would call apostasy. Someone who re completely rejects let, let me read a definition to you. Apostasy, the total rejection of Christianity by a baptized person who having at one time professed the Christian faith now publicly rejects it. Apostasy describes those who have voluntarily and consciously abandoned their faith in the God of the covenant who manifests himself most completely in Jesus Christ. What he's talking about, those who deliberately keep on sinning, that's someone who is living an apostate life, someone who possibly has professed Christ, who has believed that at one time, but now they're rejecting it. 
okay? They've turned their backs on it. He's not, listen, John said in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, he's talking to Christians. He's writing to believers. He says, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We're lying. And we make him out to be a liar, Jesus. So, how do you deal with these? Well, because what the Hebrew writer is talking about is not a momentary lapse, something that we stumble into or we find ourselves uh, making a mistake, but yet we're sorry for it. He's talking about those who are deliberately living a life of apostasy, total rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? A fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. Notice what this text says about this raging fire. A raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What, is that, what does that mean? I, I just want you to think about that. What does it mean that the enemies of God will be consumed? Something for us to think about, maybe study at a later time. He says, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Oftentimes in Scripture we see this. You make, you make one point, and if that's true here, how much more will it be true here? And so he argues from the lesser to the greater. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's true. And if that is the case, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That word trampled, it's the same, the same verbiage that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? All it's useful for is to be thrown out and to be trampled, trampled underfoot. You see, if salt is not salty, if it, if it loses its saltiness, what's it good for, right? It ceased to exist for the reason for which it exists. Because if salt is not salty, it's no good anymore. And all it can do is be trampled underfoot. It's the same uh, verbiage that is used when it's talking about casting your swine before pearl, your pearl before... I knew I was going to say that backwards. Casting, you don't cast your swine. Cast your pearls before swine. What good is a pearl to a, to a pig? 
He doesn't appreciate it, does he? It, it means nothing to him. What would a pig do with a strand of pearls? Step on them, trample them. And that's what he's talking about. That's who he's talking about. How much more severely would a man be punished who would trample underfoot the Son of God? He's not talking about someone who makes a mistake, who sins and is sorry for it and says, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. We know that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses those of their sin. If they're faithful to confess, John says, God is faithful and just to forgive. He's not talking about those people. He's not talking about us in that regard. But he's talking about someone who completely rejects Jesus Christ as Messiah. And it's as if he's trampling the Son of God under his foot. Notice what else. Who treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. It sound, Oh, it just sounds as if these, these readers, some of these readers have been sanctified. They've, they've begun to be changed. That's what being sanctified means, being transformed into the image of Jesus. It seems as if some of them had been sanctified, and now not only are they trampling the Son of God underfoot, but they're treating the blood of the covenant as if it's an unholy thing. It's good for nothing. It's meaningless. How much more severely will they be punished? It seems to me, uh, let me read a passage, 2 Peter chapter 2. Turn over there with me, 2 Peter chapter 2. I wish, it, I wish it weren't so. Second Peter chapter 2, look at verse 20. The word of the Lord says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the beginning, uh, they are worse off than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them, listen, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. How a man, how a woman can taste and know that God is good and then turn their backs, I, it, it's beyond me, but I believe it. I believe it can happen. So notice what he says in verse thirty. For we know him who said, "It is mine to avenge; I will repay." And again, the Lord will judge his people. 
It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 12 and verse 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I think if we truly, truly believe that, it would make us cry. I believe if we truly could wrap our minds around that, we'd lay our head down on our pillows at night and weep because there are people who are lost, who don't know Jesus. There's a time, there's a day coming when God says, I will revenge, I will I will pay them back. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And if we truly believe that, I think we would go and we would tell. We would tell a lost and dying world. It's appointed a man wants to die and then the judgment. It is a dreadful thing, he says, to fall in, in the hands of a living God. You remember the prodigal son? You remember what a mess he made of his life? He said to his father, I, I, in essence, I wish you were dead because I want my money now. I, I want my inheritance right now. He goes off. He squanders it. Riotous living. You can only imagine women, wine, booze, drugs. He finds himself wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. And it says, the Bible says he came to his senses. And he thought to himself, even my father's slaves have it better than I have it. <laughs> they eat better than I eat. I'm just going to go back home. And I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And I'm just going to ask him. I don't even want to be a son. Don't, don't take me back as a son. I just want to be like a hired hand. And so he goes and he's rehearsed. You can almost hear him rehearsing what he's going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Please welcome me back, as, not as a son, but as a servant. And the Bible says that when his father saw him from afar off, he ran to him. He ran. It's the only time in the Bible we see God running because that's who the father is supposed to be. He's depicting God. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, but it is a wonderful thing to fall into the arms of a loving father, a father that will forgive if you'll come back home. I don't want to end on a downer. I want to end on a high note this morning. It's been sort of a downer sermon, isn't it? I want to end on a high note. I haven't hit a high note since the mid-1970s. But I want to end on a high note this morning. Look at verse 32. Remember those earlier days. He's writing to people. Listen, he's writing to people who are discouraged. Possibly being tugged to, 
to chuck all of this, to go back to their old way of life. Remember those earlier days after you received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, that great contest, that's the same word that we get our word athlete from. It's, it's, it's a, a, a competition. You're competing this great contest, and you suffered. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and to persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Listen, he's not talking to a people saying, listen, I want you to understand, you might have to go through some persecution. Here are some things that might happen to you in the future, so I want you to get ready so you'll know this and you won't be caught off guard. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to them, you've endured these things. You've already suffered. You've been persecuted. You stood side by side others who were going through the same thing. You joyfully accepted when they took your property away. They came and they confiscated your stuff. But you rejoiced because why? You knew you had better possessions. That's what Hebrews is, a book of better things, the book of superior things. Oh, you can take what I have here. It doesn't matter because I've got better things waiting for me. He's not telling them you might experience some of these things. He's telling them you have experienced it. You've suffered. You stood by and watched other people, and you stood side by side with them. So what he's saying is don't throw it all away. Don't suffer for nothing. You've experienced these things. So do not throw away your confidence. Why? Because it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. We talked about our brother Mike Allen this morning, prayed for his family. Mike did not throw away his confidence. Starting eight or nine months ago when we went to his house and prayed for him, we got on our knees and prayed for Mike that God would bring healing in this life if it was God's will. And every day, Mike was so positive. I know my God can heal me. I know he has the power. And just like the Hebrew children who said, I know my God is able, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, I'm going to cling to this because I know, it's, I know it's the truth. I will not lose my faith in God. Even though these bad things are happening, Mike, Mike said to me, I know where I'm going. If God doesn't heal me in this life, I know where I'm headed. And I'm okay with that. Do not throw away your confidence. Why? Because it will be richly rewarded. Don't throw it all away. Look at what you've been through. You've suffered. 
Don't throw it away now. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But notice what he says. This is what he says to them. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's not us. We're not the ones who chuck it all. We're not the ones who throw it all away. We're the ones who hang in there. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who believe and are saved. I can almost picture those maybe in, in days of old who wanting to cross the ocean, they, they board a large wooden ship and the sun is shining and they begin to set sail. And maybe they sail for several days and all is well. But then one day the, the, blouse, the black clouds start to gather and the winds begin to blow and all of a sudden it starts to rain. And now the boat is being pelted with rain and the lightning and the thunder. And all of a sudden the waves are crashing over the bow of the boat and you're, and you're beginning to say, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we should have just stayed where we were. Maybe we shouldn't have taken on this voyage, but now we're in the middle of it. And now the, the boat's being tossed back and forth. And maybe they even tie themselves to the mast, not knowing what the night would hold. But then the winds begin to calm. The waves begin to settle. The sky begins to open up. The rays of the sun come shining through. And you can almost see the harbor. You're almost to the harbor. The Hebrew writer says, don't throw it away. Don't throw it away now. You've weathered the storm. <laughs> the storm has passed. You've weathered it. You're almost there. You're almost there. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying to us today. Don't throw it away. You've been through some stuff. Your body's wearing out. Some of you have endured tragedy, loss, cancer, sickness. And we grieve those things. Those things hurt in this life. God never says that they wouldn't. But the writer's telling us, don't throw it away. Stay. Hang in there. You can almost see the harbor. And there's a day coming, and it's coming soon. It says he will come, and he will not delay. And he'll take us to be home with him.